in this life as well as the next. Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 41 as we're uh, coming close uh, to the end of Genesis. 40 chapters in. Are you, uh, do you want to finish the last 10? Should we pause? Should we stop? I guess we'll, I guess, I guess we'll finish it up, right? So chapter 41 this morning of Genesis. Here's the, 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 the ending section is the story of Joseph. One of the sons of Jacob, who was a son of uh, Isaac, who was son, obviously, of course, of Abraham. And so this is the line of God's children, the, the covenant people. Uh, and now Joseph's in Egypt. And uh, there's going to be, as, as we'll see here, there's going to be a famine eventually. And the Lord uses all this uh, uh, injustice and imprisonment and uh, uh, unfriending, we might say, in our sort of modern parlance. Uh, but also this famine. These are all hard tragedies. These are all harsh providences, uh, hard things uh, that uh, God's people had to go through and we still struggle with today, going through difficulties. But the Lord used it all for his good, uh, for his glory, and for the salvation of the Israelites to bring us to have a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, Genesis 41 picks up in the middle of all this where Joseph's in prison. And then we read this. Uh, so so uh, last Sunday, he's in prison, and there are these two officials, the cupbearer, uh, as well as uh, the chief baker of the pharaoh. They've been put into prison too. They had dreams. Only Joseph could interpret the dreams. Uh, one man was uh, uh, restored to his position. One man was put to death for his uh, whatever it was he did to the pharaoh. And now we read, after two whole years, so Joseph's still there in prison, Pharaoh dreamed, just like the two officials, that he was standing by the Nile. So imagine the Nile River. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed on the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep, and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, he, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams. But there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody, and the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I 
have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, and then he recounts the dream, and skipping down to verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears, blighted by the east wind, are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine." This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, and whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. So you shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set, over, uh, set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took a signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen. There's Joseph again with uh, clothes again. And put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonat Paanea, and gave him, a, in, uh, gave him in marriage Asenat, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the years produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of, the, of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenat, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Uh, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. 
the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph said to him, uh, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Loved ones, let's say to these words, Amen. Well, by now in, in uh, your life, you uh, know what it's like to be ignored. You know what it's like to be forgotten. Uh, you know what it's like to be an afterthought in somebody's mind. Uh, many of us have been ignored. And uh, yet, even that it being ignored could be used for, for good in our lives. You, you may have been forgotten uh, by a loved one on your birthday. Right? Something as, uh, as simple as that. You, uh, you, you may have been an afterthought to somebody that you, hel- uh, that, that, you, that you helped and you hoped when you were in a time of need that they would come and uh, they would help you too, but they forgot all about you. Uh, life's full of disappointments. Being forgotten, being ostracized, being ignored, being an afterthought, and we saw last Sunday even being persecuted for following the Lord Jesus Christ, for knowing him, for standing up for him. All of us know this is a harsh truth of life. And so there's lots of disappointment. There's lots of pain in this life. Uh, Martin Luther uh, once uh, penned a prayer. And that prayer is, uh, we use that prayer every time we celebrate baptism. Uh, It's called the Great Flood Prayer. And in that prayer, uh, Martin Luther describes the Christian life as nothing but a constant death. At that moment of great celebration of of life, the the sign of God's covenant that points us to the new life that we find alone in Jesus Christ, but we're also reminded in baptism, even when we celebrate new life, that life is nothing but a constant death. There's pain, there's disappointment, there's struggle in this life. Uh, One hymn writer said it like this, Though friends may all forsake me, The world be voice of cheer. Christ's smile. Thy heart will brighten and drive away thy fear. The world is going to bring to us great affliction. In this world you will have affliction, Jesus said, but I have overcome the world. So we turn to Genesis again in the story of Joseph. Uh, We saw him last Lord's Day experience what you and I experience in terms of the sorrows and the harshness even of life. Pharaoh's cupbearer forgot him. Even after Joseph had interpreted his dream and that, uh, that man was restored to his office. And here we are two years later. And the cupbearer is still there next to Pharaoh, giving him his wine, tasting it for him, putting it in front of him. And Joseph had hoped just for a mere mention. If you could just sort of, just say my name once to Pharaoh so that I can get out of this prison, this pit, 
he would do me this great favor. But yet he forgot him, we saw at the end of chapter 40. He did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And so here he is. Two years later of still being in a prison, yes, he is in charge of a prison, but he's in prison. He's been forgotten. He's been left there in a pit, literally and figuratively. And so our story speaks to us of Joseph today. He, he's still there in that pit, but now he gets out. He goes from the pit, and not just literally, but even his own sort of existential feeling of being in the pits, we might say. He's down there, and he's not, uh, he's not free to go as he pleases. Uh, he's been lied to and cheated and, 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 and tricked by his brothers, and they plotted, and they sold him into slavery, and then he was sold by them into slavery. And then he was uh, done wrong by Potiphar's wife. And now he's there in prison for several years. And chapter 41 picks up two more years later there in prison. But he's brought up out of the pits in our story. And he ascends to the very palace of the Pharaoh, the king. It's really a wonderful picture, a wonderful story to us of even what God does for us in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean that Jesus forgives us and uh, he brings to us new life? Well, it's sort of like being a Joseph. We are in the pit of our sins, but yet in Jesus Christ we have been raised up to the very palace of heaven. Paul tells us this, doesn't he, in Ephesians chapter number 2, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, You were there in death. You were there in sin. Uh, you were there. You were, uh, uh, you were enslaved by the devil. You could not serve God rightly. You didn't know him. You didn't love him. You didn't live with him, nor did you want to. But you, being dead in the trespasses and uh, 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 in your trespasses and sins, you once walked in those sins and so forth, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. Even, even when we were dead. What did he do? What did he do when you were dead? Even when you were dead. Notice that. When you were dead in your trespasses. Lifeless, six feet under, a corpse. He made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. So here's Joseph in the pit, but he goes into the palace. Uh, He's a picture to, 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 to you and to me of of a believer, of what it means for God to reach down to you in the pit of your sins and to make you alive and to raise you up and to seat you with Christ. And be given every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what we see here in Genesis 41. Now the story opens up, going back to the story there, the first eight verses or so, you see there... Pharaoh's problem. Pharaoh's got a problem. 
Uh, it's been two years since his big birthday bash, as we saw in chapter 40, when the cupbearer uh, was brought out of the pits. He was restored to being the royal cupbearer. He's the one who was in charge of not just the, uh, the choosing and the, the cultivating of uh, vineyards and and the process of making wine, but he also was the man who was to taste the wine to make sure it hadn't been poisoned in some kind of a, a plot, a coup d'etat, to take out the pharaoh. And so it's been two years since that great birthday bash, and, 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 and we're back in familiar territory. The pharaoh had a dream. There's been lots of dreams so far in the story of Joseph. Joseph had dreams. We saw uh, the cupbearer and, and the chief baker had dreams. And now the pharaoh dreams. He dreamt about, as the story tells us, seven very attractive cows and seven very ugly ones. Seven very plump stalks of grain, ears of grain, and seven thin, blighted ears of grain. And he had these dreams twice, we're told. So in the morning he wakes up, verse 8 tells us, as he had, he had, he had been awakened in the middle of the night, uh, not knowing that that was uh, a dream world or reality, but he went back to sleep. The same thing over again, verse 8. As he woke up, his spirit was troubled, notice. This is just like what happened with, the, with those two officials, the cupbearer and, and the chief baker. Uh, they, they were astonished. They were troubled. Something was stirring within them. What is wrong? Where did this dream come from? But nobody could interpret except, for, of course, for Joseph. His spirit was troubled. And that's usually what happens when, when God stirs up someone like a Pharaoh or someone like you when you were still dead in your trespasses and sins, an unbeliever. There's something that God does. He even begins to use uh, our inner feelings and our inner, even our dreams to stir us up, to trouble us. As Pontius Pilate, in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ, he released Barabbas instead of releasing Jesus. Pilate's wife sent word back to Pontius Pilate, have nothing to do with that righteous man, speaking of Jesus, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. God uses, at times, dreams to stir up the souls, to stir up the minds, to stir up sinners. Now, we're... Not, that, that, that's not how we think. That, this is not the world that we live in. We live in a, in a very materialistic world. We live in an anti-supernatural world. And even for us as, as a frozen, chosen Calvinists, we, we might even uh, think, well, that's only Pentecostals. You know, we want to sort of distance ourselves from that, that, that kind of weird stuff. But God does this at times. He stirs up the Pharaoh. We're not told why yet, but, but we know why. We know the story. So he stirred up. He may have stirred you up the same way as well. Now don't, don't say that God doesn't have a sense of irony. For here is the man that the Egyptians believed to be God in the flesh, the Pharaoh. And all of his religious experts, notice all throughout Egypt, they're all surrounding him there, sitting around him with, with blank stares on their faces. And all the experts and God himself and human flesh to Pharaoh, they are blown away by this young Hebrew slave who has no training. 
He's not one of us. But there he is. There he is, interpreting the dreams. God moves in a mysterious way when a hymn writer said his wonders to perform. He uses this untrained young Hebrew in the midst of the Pharaoh's courts and all his magicians and soothsayers and, and tarot readers and so forth. He, 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 he uses this man, not them. The wonder of God is going to be that, that it's his saving grace and his saving power of Israel from famine. It's not just that he's going to save the Egyptians, but he does so so that there's a place for the Israelites to come. He's preparing this this home for the Israelites to, to save them, to protect them, to preserve them so that the Messiah would come. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob would come, the seed of David, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So there's the problem. Pharaoh has this problem. He has dreams. He can't interpret the dreams himself. Nobody else can interpret for him in the the entire land. There's the problem. But then the cupbearer, notice, perceives something. Verses 9 and following. He remembered that two years earlier, when he was there in that prison with the chief baker, that he had a, a, a similar experience as the Pharaoh. I also had a dream. We had dreams. And there was this man, this man, this, this Hebrew man, Joseph. Uh, he interpreted the dreams, but as we saw last Sunday, he didn't tell them what they wanted to hear, but what they needed to hear, what God said they needed to hear. And it all came to pass. And here I am, Pharaoh, two years later, I'm still serving your cup. And don't forget what you did to the chief baker. You lifted up my head, you put me back uh, with joy to my position, but you lifted off his head literally put him to death. So the cupbearer perceives. He perceives what he remembered happening two years earlier, and he has a solution. He has at least a suggestion for the problem of the Pharaoh. But I want you to see something. Pause just for a moment and reflect upon this. It's not just that the the cupbearer has the solution to Pharaoh's problem uh, and the story moves on, but... The cupbearer didn't remember Pharaoh, uh, didn't remember Joseph to the Pharaoh until, again, verse 1, after two whole years. It's been two long, hard years between those two chapters, between the two stories that we've just read. Two long years. That Joseph was a forgotten man, left to die, meant nothing to the cupbearer. Two more years imprisoned, two more years knowing that an injustice had been done to him, there was no recourse. Two more years to think and to ponder what had happened to him, why it happened. And not just that injustice of being forgotten after having done a great favor for the power of God to interpret the dreams, but he had been put there by, by, an, by an unjust accusation by Potiphar's wife, and he had been in Potiphar's wife because of an, of a, of an injustice as well as brothers. Two more years to, to navel gaze and, and to say, woe is me. Two more years of despair in that pit. 
Why? Why did Joseph need to wait two more years? In that pit, that prison pit, or more to the point, the question that you and I ask as as believers oftentimes is, where is God? Where is God? We might try to answer the question with sort of a human-centered answer. Well, the cupbearer was a forgetful man. So the first time around, he, he forgot, but now he kind of remembered. Maybe now, he thought, was the best time to sort of butter up the pharaoh and you know, get an even better position in Egypt. Maybe he was drunk the first time. That, that's why he forgot. He was so happy with being restored to cupbearer that he, that he overindulged in the wine that he was supposed to give to the pharaoh. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's why he forgot. Whatever the reason why the cupbearer forgot Joseph, who knows why? Who knows? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why, because it was God's plan. It was God's plan all along. Which again brings us to the question, well then why would God allow Joseph to suffer for two more years? Why would God allow one of his children, those that he loves, the apple of his eye, the ones that he's given Jesus for, the ones that he's put his Holy Spirit in, why would God forget you? Why would God make you wait, in this case, two long years for some help? Because that's what God planned to do. It was God's will. As harsh as that might sound, it's easy. it might be easy in this case, because this is a Bible character, right? This is not me, but what about you? Well, are there times where God makes you wait for something and it's a long time? Yeah. Was that God's plan? Was that God's will? Yes. And so we learn in the story of Joseph here not to speculate. You know, why am I here? What did I do to make this happen? Why am I not out of this situation yet? Uh, yet? Why isn't God doing anything about it? Where is God? It's okay to cry out, where is God? But we shouldn't speculate. God has a plan for you. In fact, God's plan for you is a plan that he's purposed before you were even born. And not just before you were even born, but before the foundation of the world. There's, there, you've, you have a plan. God has a purpose for you. Now, you and I, we don't know what that plan is until we actually live it out. But God has a plan. And for us, it's, the task for us is to believe God's promise. To believe in him, to trust him, to, to entrust ourselves to him, and to live our lives according to how he's already revealed himself in his word. To obey him, to trust him, to love him, to serve him, for as long as he wants us to do that, until he just might help us in this life or perhaps in the life to come. And so here's the cupbearer who perceives 
something about the Pharaoh's problem. He has an answer, which is Joseph. And that brings us then to the last point. Notice, notice what Joseph says, his proclamation there, verse 14 and following. Uh, we, we, we go back there to the story, and uh, there's, a, there's a Jewish commentator, Nahum Sarna, who, who wonderfully explains the situation that's going on here uh, in this pit and now the palace. Uh, he said that a heaven-sent opportunity of a lifetime had come knocking at Joseph's prison gates. There he was. He didn't deserve to be there, but he was there. And now God acts. And now God does something about it. And so Pharaoh summons Joseph, and, and he says that he, he heard all about him, uh, that he was able, notice that you can interpret dreams, verse 15. Notice that. You can interpret dreams. Yet notice Joseph's reply. His proclamation. What, what, what does he do? He deflects from himself. And he puts all the shine, all the, all the glory upon God. It's not in me, he says. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer, verse 16. Again, verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And again, verse 32, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. Joseph's proclamation is... It's not his proclamation. We saw this last Sunday. We talked about what, 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 what Joseph says to us about preaching and proclaiming. This is what God wants him to say. He's merely the instrument, the vessel. He's just the mouthpiece, but it's God who speaks. He's a true prophet. He's a true preacher who would well agree with what the Apostle Paul says to us in the New Testament. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for example. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And again in 2 Corinthians 5, not that we, this is the apostle saying, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. The Pharaoh only hears, there's this man who can interpret my dreams, and he simply assumes that the power lies in him, and he says, no, it's God. Already, God is telling the Pharaoh, as he's going to say eventually through Moses to Pharaoh, uh, let my people go, that you might know that I'm the Lord. He's already proclaiming to the king, the Pharaoh, that God is the king, that God is the Lord. And that these dreams and these interpretations come from God. And so his proclamation led him from the pit to the palace. Notice the responsibilities he had. He's placed in charge of the palace. He had been placed in charge of Potiphar's house and all the slaves that were in the house. He, as the chief slave, was in charge of all the slaves, the servants, in Potiphar's house. Then he's put into prison. And, he, and, and then he's put over the, the whole prison because of his, his righteousness, his ability to administer and so forth, all the gifts that God had given to him. And again, he's now placed in charge of the palace, the land of Egypt, all the granaries of Egypt. And what's fascinating is as we read our Bibles and, and, we, and we read that in 
sort of light of ancient history, there are ancient Egyptian texts that confirm that this kind of thing happened. It's not a legend. It's not a myth. That non-Egyptians were placed in high places in Egypt. He would have had titles such as the chief, uh, uh, the great chief in the palace, or the chief of the entire land, overseer of the granaries of the upper and lower Egypt. And Pharaoh signifies this. He shows the Egyptians, not just the court, but all the people, this place that he's put Joseph in by putting his royal signet ring on and a chain of gold around his neck. And once again, Joseph gets to wear some kind of a clothing that signifies the special place in which he's put. He proclaims this all comes from God. God's in control. We, I've mentioned this. The story of Joseph is all about the providence of God, the, uh, the purpose of God to provide and to lead and to, and to govern and to move left and right, up and down, back and forward, the, the lives of not just us individually, but the whole world. God's in control of it all. The Pharaoh thought he was God in human flesh. He was troubled. God was troubled, quote-unquote. God was troubled. And no one can tell him what it all meant except God, the true God. So was Joseph there in prison? Was Joseph sold into slavery? Was Joseph done wrong? Was he he a a recipient of injustice? Had he been forgotten, uh, ostracized, uh, left for dead? Was it all according to God's plan? We'll see in chapter 50, he tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And somehow or another, we have to embrace that as Christians. That the principle of that verse, what, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The struggles of the Christian life, the sins that we commit, the sins committed against us, the evils, the struggles, the ups and downs, all these things, yet God, yet God meant it for good. And so once again, we see in the sufferings of Joseph, uh, the unjust sufferings of Joseph, we see in, he, in, in him a, a type of the sufferings of Jesus. Once again, we see in his prophetic proclamation uh, that he's a type of our Lord Jesus, the Word who was made flesh, who came to proclaim the will of God to young and old, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, widow and king. We see in Joseph's rise from the pit to the palace a a type of the Savior to come. Joseph is the Savior of Israel, but he's only a picture of a a Savior to come who's going to rise up out of the heart of the earth from the grave, and he's going to ascend to the right hand of God and to rule all things, the rod of iron. But most of all we see in the story, in all the little historical intricacies and all the interesting ways in which the story unfolds, the characters, the plot, and the development, and so forth. But most of all, we see this. The indomitable, invincible, unconquerable grace of Almighty God, who's going to save his people, no matter what the world, the Egyptians, the Pharaoh, in this case, the flesh, the sins that we see throughout our story. No matter what the world, the flesh, or the devil throws at 
Joseph throws at Israel, throws back at God. No matter what the world, the flesh, the devil, they want to do, God has a plan. And he is going to save his people. Joseph sold into slavery, and the devil thought he had won. But God makes him head of a household. Joseph was then thrown into prison. Again, the devil thought he had won. He's going to die there, but God makes him steward over the prison. Joseph says a seven-year famine is coming, which would surely then extend into the land of Canaan, where that small little family of, 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 of Jacob lives. Surely they would die through this famine. Joseph would live, and, and his Egyptian wife and his Egyptian children would live, but, but surely the devil had won and wiped out the promise of God on the Israelites. But God raises up Joseph. God raises up Joseph out of the pit and puts him into the very palace of the Pharaoh to save the Egyptians so that the Israelites might have a place for survival too. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And so, you see, you might be ignored. You might be forgotten. You might even be an afterthought by all those around you, the world. You might experience the pit of life like Joseph. But, but, God has made you alive in Jesus Christ. You who are dead have been made alive. You who are buried with Christ have been raised with Christ. You who are sons of Satan are now sons of the Heavenly Father. Full inheritors, not of Egypt, not of a bunch of grain, not of even the land. No, full inheritors of a full everlasting kingdom of glory that awaits us. And as we come this morning to the Lord's presence, we come here before him to hear this and to sing of it and to receive it in the Lord's Supper. God uses the means of bread and wine to impress upon you. Although it is just bread and wine, it's, it's simple. These are simple elements. These are earthly elements. These are meant to point us to the heavenly realities that Jesus Christ is alive and because he's alive, so are we. And because he's at God's right hand already, so are we already by faith to, uh, at the right hand of God, seated there in glory. And one day, one day we will no longer have to eat earthly bread and wine. We'll partake in glory, of glory, with the God of glory at the right hand where Jesus Christ is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us the word and granting to us the promises of it. And we thank you for all the twists and turns and the plots and the stories of the word, uh, like Joseph this morning, that all point us to you. Uh, You and your grace. You and your power. uh, You, Lord, and your plan that cannot be thwarted. And so enable us and and help us to align our minds and our hearts, uh, our lives and our thoughts to, to your plan. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. We ask, Lord, that you would now uh, bring us around this table. And as we all come, Lord, from various tribes and languages and peoples and nations, we all come as beggars, we all come as sinners. 
Yet, as we come to this table, we come to the throne of grace to be reminded that we are already seated and we are already sons and daughters. We are already full heirs of all of your promises. Help us to believe that today. Help us to know that we have already been raised from the pit to the palace. We ask it all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Let's turn together in our hymnals in response. Uh,